0: Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our Webinar Wednesdays when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Webinar Wednesday by Smart Karma. I'm Michael Tegos. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming insight provider Jason Yap, who will share his insights on forensic accounting and how to apply it to the investment process. Jason is an independent forensic analyst with 11 years of experience, and he was previously a senior forensic analyst at a Singapore and Shanghai-based fund with approximately 2.5 billion in AUM. Jason, thank you very much for being with us today. Let's get right to it.
1: All right, uh, thanks, Michael. Uh, hi, all, and uh, thanks for attending today's uh, webinar uh, late in the afternoon. I believe um, most of you will be relatively uh, new to the concept of forensic accounting. So, for this presentation, it will not be a technical presentation. And uh, as far as I can, I'll try to make it as relatable to your day to day investment work. And second, um, by the end of this uh, webinar, I hope each of you will have. A handful of uh, forensic accounting takeaways that you can uh, immediately apply to your investment work. So uh, today's uh, webinar will be split into three parts. First, what is forensic accounting? Second, how is it relevant to investments? Well, I'll list out the problem statement from the perspective of uh, investors. And I will also highlight some uh, notable investors who have applied forensic accounting to their investment process. And lastly, we'll delve into some uh, specific approaches and methods to identify accounting and governance shenanigans, uh, so called. And uh, finally, we'll end of, to discuss briefly about what it ultimately means for your portfolio, the portfolio implications. So, uh, before that, just a short uh, introduction, uh, adding on to what Michael uh, said. So, I've started this company, uh, Logos Advisors. It's essentially an investment search company that focuses on forensic accounting. Uh, 11 years of experience in both forensic accounting and investments. This includes uh, three years in Beijing, where I did uh, forensic engagements on Chinese companies. So forensic accounting, to put it uh, in simple terms, is just a combination of uh, investigative skill sets together with financial and accounting expertise. Uh, Traditionally, an accounting firm it's used to investigate fraud and for example, embezzlement cases, and ultimately to present the findings to say uh, an audit committee or the court. Uh, Of course, in uh, recent years, there's uh, an increasing uh, prevalence of fund managers incorporating forensic accounting and investigative search techniques into their investment process to the extent that uh, apart from traditional analysts, they're hiring uh, forensic accountants and investigative journalists. There's two key differences between uh, these two types, uh, in the sense that for the traditional forensic accounting, it's usually post fact when fraud has already happened and you just need to substantiate your, your findings, and two is because it's your appointment is through a corp appointment or through the audit committee appointment you typically have better access to information uh, and also access to management whereas for forensic accounting in the investment space it's usually outside in they're trying to um, you know analyze the the business from a forensic accounting perspective using only public information and also it's sort of preemptive rather than a post-spec approach Moving on, there's are uh, two main types of uh, fraud, financial misstatement and uh, asset mis- misappropriation. For those who are familiar, there's actually a third, uh, bribery and corruption, but this has a relatively less direct uh, impact on financial statements, which is what the investors are concerned about. Even if there were, it's usually bribery and corruption would be a precursor to the financial mis- misstatement and, and asset misappropriation that follow. So, one simple way to understand how to incorporate forensic investment is, is essentially a, a risk-based framework where you do analysis to identify the risk, you determine or evaluate the likelihood of occurrence, and ultimately you try to determine the so-called quantum of the significance to the organization. And um, I think it will be very demanding for you guys and even for forensic accounting experts look at certain information and say, for certain there's fraud. So uh, in the investment perspective, what we want to arrive at is actually determining whether there's credible risk of fraud rather than fraud per se. And when um, credible risk of fraud is determined, then it becomes an iterative process where you might want to escalate your investigative work or you want may want to engage management to find out uh, more details. And Just quickly, a typical um, conceptual framework we use is the fraud triangle. Uh, I won't go into detail, but essentially it's the three parts here. Uh, pressure, opportunity, rationalization. Pressure when there's shareholder pressure, for instance, pressure from the creditors. Uh, opportunity relates to where there's uh, internal control deficiencies or where there's a very um, dominant uh, founder, who leads, which leads to management override of uh, operational level decisions. And lastly, rationalization. Um, something interesting is, typically in a massive fraud, the, the fraudster would insist that everything is justifiable, I have done nothing wrong. So this is typically the mental state that they find themselves in uh, at the end of uh, the day. So the problem statement here, just to put it very simply, uh, I hope I'm not being too simplistic here is Uh, Investors rely on financial statement analysis to make investment decisions. But um, we've seen Knockin' Coffee, we've seen Wirecard uh, that has shown that the financial statements, even audited ones, can be materially misstated. So this leads to unreliable data that you base your analysis on. And um, accounting rate flags that can be reviewed through analysis uh, are ignored and management not. Hold accountable and ultimately, there's missed opportunities to generate investment, excess investment returns. And perhaps something uh, more of concern for investors is it doesn't necessarily work to the effect that fraudsters just want as high as possible revenue or earnings. Because, um, as you guys are fully aware, sell side analysts, buy side analysts. They follow the growth trajectory uh, very closely so sometimes it's about rather than sort of maximizing revenue and earnings it's about smoothening the pace of growth or smoothening the financial and operating metrics that people look at for example uh, e-commerce companies uh, gmb so just a couple of examples of notable investors not just banker Nikolai Tangent, the CEO of a uh, bank, he's a big fan of uh, forensic accounting investments. So as you see here, he has uh, sort of linked this application of forensic accounting to what he calls negative selection, and also uh, he's also brought brought in the, the concept of ESG, which uh, makes sense because um, my personal opinion is uh, because it's it's so Overhyped these days. There's a over emphasis on environmental and social concerns, but the corporate governance aspect seems to be uh, forgotten, or I mean, less emphasis upon. So moving on, um, for not just there's a specific example where Nikolai Tangent, he was explaining how they saw the the FT report on Wirecard in early twenty nineteen. They did their own uh, independent research and arrive at a state of credible risk, where upon which they made the decision to exit Wirecard and avoided the, the losses. So, this is uh, one example of how it can be applied. Uh, two other examples, maybe something that's more familiar, is short sellers. So, kind of Jim Chano's famous short seller, financial detective, trying to determine that cash did not exist and then betting, betting on, on that something closer to home or Singapore is um, even GIC. This may or may not represent what they're thinking today, but this is uh, an old uh, sort of job posting they did, I think last year where they wanted a forensic accountant for their public equities uh, department. So they wanted to basically highlight, I mean, they basically wanted to determine the risk of their investments and the differences between market perception And reported figures, as opposed to the economic realities. Okay, moving on. A couple of common red flags. I won't dwell into each of these because this will take too much time. But uh, just to give a bit of a flavour, I'll talk about revenue and debt. So, in terms of revenue inflation, there's two broad approaches to look at it. One is through uh, accounting fundamentals, and uh, also industry and peer comparisons. So the first accounting fundamentals, if you look at the revenue, every dollar increase in revenue would have would show itself somewhere else. So in the case here, it's receivables, accounts receivables will be affected, the cash balance, the cash flows will be affected. So common sort of red flag is when there's a divergence in the pace of revenue growth, as opposed to the cash uh, receipts. Uh, and also, you see uh, accumulating uh, accounts receivable position that's building up and up without uh, any cash collections coming uh, in at all. And then uh, the industry and peer uh, comparison example. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of common sense, and I just like to raise one uh, example here for those who are familiar with. Uh, the China um, landscape, that's the famous air conditioner manufacturer called Gui, uh, helmed by this uh, Charlie Li Dong. So last year, um, there was a lot of hype about how she managed to do 65 billion R&B and live streaming sales on I think TikTok in one day. But if you look at it, the nationwide air conditioner sales is around 214 million units uh, a year. And you multiply that by the sort of uh, average X factory price, 2005 to 3000, you arrive at five hundred thirty five billion. So uh, effectively, Charlie Lee Tong managed to achieve single-handedly 1.2% of the total nationwide sales in a single day, which also means by extension, if she just worked a little bit harder and did live streaming for another two and a half months, she could single-handedly so all the uh, nationwide air-conditioners by ourselves. So is that even uh, possible? So things like that uh, might you know, trigger some uh, reflex. flags. And I guess the takeaway here is accounting principles are standardized and well-intentioned, but there's certainly room for companies to interpret them. And also uh, some loopholes, although, uh, the gap and IFIS bodies are continually trying to uh, keep up with things. Detection tools. So, just bring back to my introduction where I said that you know forensic accounting in uh, investment setting it's outside in and public information only. So, what can we look at? So, just very quickly, uh, it's mostly self-explanatory. And at least a couple of tables, but. Uh, for instance, you can do accounting screens as a form of uh, active fraud surveillance. No human eyeballing required. Something that you know prompts you whenever something uh, is detected through your screens. And at Smart Karma, there's a competent uh, tool provided by a previous uh, insight provider. So this could be helpful. And for those who subscribe to GMT research, they can also use the screens. It helps. Uh, personally, I just want to sort of add a caveat that there's a very good chance of false negatives, such that 50% of the red flags they turn up may or may not be true, then you might ask yourself what's the point of the screens after all. So basically never use these screens in isolation and uh, you know complement that with uh, separate analysis, independent analysis. Uh, second uh, resource is earnings transcripts or even better listening to the call itself, so you can listen to the management's uh, informations and so on. I've uh, previously written an article, the link is here, so I won't go into detail, but basically entering uh, an earnings call and, and such always have a healthy degree of uh, skepticism and uh, try to pick up the metadata in the sense that sometimes any word additions, deletions, or omissions compared to the historical quarters might actually have a significance. Uh, next is uh, exchange filings, which includes your uh, financial statements and uh, every other company announcements, industry peer group analysis, etc., etc., and uh, auditor reservations and qualified opinions. Uh, Transaction document analysis and analysis and and so on. Another thing that uh, might be interesting is short seller reports. So instead of betting against the the, the ideas thrown, I want to put myself in the shoes of, I'm along in, for instance, uh, Evergrande. And there's a short seller report. So do I trust this report or not, you know? So what? it's usually uh, best practice is to do an independent assessment of uh, the short seller report and the methodologies and um, you might even want to reperform the investigative procedures and in, in recent times the likes of money waters and citron research are becoming more sophisticated in the sense that they're doing sort of digital forensics like you know tracking the APIs tracking the bots that attend the classes for GSX for those who have read the recent uh I mean not recent but last year's news, so things like that uh you might want to equip yourself with this, these these uh, capabilities to uh, do this reperformance. performance. Uh, next is uh company searches. This um I think two main uh, aspects. One is to see if there's any uh, legal. Um, situation. Sometimes it shows up in company searches and uh, sometimes it's also good for you to pick out uh, related party transactions such as key appointment holders between the company's suppliers and the company. This is usually uh, a bit of a red flag. Lastly, uh, sentiment analysis. Many tools out there today. Mainstream media reports, social media, so you might want to pick pick up uh, the details from there so ultimately the use of forensic accounting doesn't necessarily need to be to prove a fraud it could serve uh, the purpose of you know um, assessing the company's quality of earnings or the strength of the balance sheet or whether there's a sort of debt time bomb ahead so even in this context even a low or cheap PE company can be expensive if the revenue and earnings are inflated. By extension, a low price to book can be expensive if the asset values are inflated. So you know some independent evaluation might be part of the cost. And then uh, the classic uh, saying that managers are incentivized to see the share price rise and the tenure are short. So in the time that they're with the company, they will use aggressive accounting practices to to front load revenues. So something to to watch out for. So ultimately, just to recap, forensic accounting would help not just for shorts, but uh, evaluating revenue and earnings quality growth, prospects, cash flows, corporate governance. And uh, with that analysis, you can either resize or exit positions with significant accounting or governance risks, or you can use it as a capital allocation tool to either buy high-quality companies or avoid or short low-quality companies. So with that, uh, I conclude my uh, presentation and I open the floor for questions.
0: Thank you very much. Jason, I think you put it very well when you uh, just said that uh, even a cheap low P company can be expensive if the revenue and earnings are inflated, as your uh, slide mentions there, uh, which I think really kind of drives home the implications for investors. Does it feel like there's increased attention paid by investors to this particular aspect these days? Like, Have we Sort of learned lessons from debacles like uh, Luckin Coffee and Wirecard.
1: I would say yes, there, there might have been. So before Luckin and Wirecard, it was a sort of a long lull when the last big fraud of um of note is you know the likes of Enron and and a couple others, uh, which is right. decades ago. So but of this and in Coffee incident and why that at definitely sort of put to fall the the prospects that you know earnings are inflated and so on. So I think most competent uh, analysts delve deep into the, the figures. They would you know for instance remove share based compensation. They would remove one time extraordinary income and then use use the 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 net earnings to you know have a house view on the, the PE. So I think this awareness is definitely higher. Uh, of course, I'm uh, self-interested to say that there's definitely more more to be done.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. A question from the audience is: Can you elaborate on related party transactions uh, and their implications as red flags?
1: Related party transactions. First, there's a sort of a transfer, interest transfer between. friends and family, for instance. So you always want to make sure that any transaction is at arm's length. So taking Gree, for instance, a lot of its suppliers are actually related parties, and in fact, its third largest shareholder is actually a a major supplier. So, I mean, Gree was basically caught between a rock and a hard place in terms of maximizing revenue or offending the suppliers in the sense that they have actually held off on uh, the channel reform efforts towards moving to e-commerce. So on one hand, you know, you're not generating the maximum value or keeping up with your peers in terms of uh, your earnings margin, but there's another interest of uh, protecting your relationship with the suppliers slash related party. So this is one, Sort of conflict that might might happen, and um, maybe a more nefarious case is where you misappropriate funds through really the companies.
0: Got it. Thank you for that. Another question is, uh, how do you decide which industry uh, or which company to spend time on? How do you prioritize companies to cover?
1: There's no uh, hard and fast rule, but for me, I try to read as widely as possible. Not just financial news, but also industry sector news. Uh, If you have friends in a specific shipping oil sector, speak to them. And uh, always try to be skeptical about what one is saying versus the other and try to connect the dots. And usually um, you might come to something that says, hey, this doesn't really, stack up and you might want to do further research. So that's how I personally do it. Uh, I mean, there are people who rely on counting screens and so on, which also works.
0: Understood. Thank you. Another question is, uh, are there any striking metrics or ratios that will cause you to be skeptical at a glance?
1: So, for instance, um, Growth and margins, something that's out of whack with the historical growth and mar- growth rate and margins, and their peers, it would be something that that's uh, alarming to me. But of course, if I investigate and this is justified by, for example, a new line of business that's that's hot, you know, then I'll, I'll let it pass. Other than that, uh, I like to look at the leverage solvency ratios, uh, just to uh, give me some assurance of the their their solvency and their ability to to repay debts and also the working capital conditions which give me an uh, indication of whether they are deferring payments to suppliers because they can't cough up the cash or they're having struggling to collect receivables from their customers things like that
0: got it there's a question about Evergrande, which of course is um, all, the, uh, all the rage in the news right now. So with so much problems uncovered at Evergrande, have the auditors uh, highlighted the issues sufficiently to investors?
1: I, cannot, I haven't done enough work to make a call on the auditor's work. But based on what I read in the media and so on, Maybe just to share, I think one, one instance where that, that debt accumulated without being noticed is, may or may not be true, I read this from media reports, some Chinese media reports that basically they had uh, retail financial product salespersons at their property selling a uh, retail financial products. And it ever again incorporated companies that they owed just under 50%, so it doesn't need to consolidate the, the, subsidi- the associate company on its books. And then you use this associate company to rack up debts, uh, use associate company represents itself as having an Evergrande parent guarantee, and then uh, people buy into that. And then the, the funds are then channeled into uh, Evergrande's uh, uh, initiatives. So the debt is essentially an off balance sheet that doesn't show up immediately on uh, the consolidated uh, financial statements of Evergrande. And perhaps also because of the, the property uh, time-down measures that's caused things to surface.
0: Got it. Thank you for that. Uh, The attendee also has a question on uh, nanofilm. So their question is, uh, just wonder if the recent share price drop of nanofilm is detectable uh, as its revenue profit dropped much below expectation. I'm not sure if you have a comment on that.
1: Uh, sorry, I haven't really looked at
0: panel film. Understood. With differences in reporting and, account- and accounting across different markets, do you think that this is an extra challenge for investors and, of course, analysts, uh, basically trying to keep up?
1: I think um, if you are able to get a solid grounding on Gap and uh, IFRS, and also rather than Reading the details of all the accounting rules. Keep just talk of the new changes they have been they have introduced in recent years. That might be enough, cause that will give you some direction of what of uh, accounting rule arbitrage or loopholes they are trying to close. So there's two I can raise here. Is, for uh, example, uh, many uh, companies used to use operating leases to hide debt or off balance sheet debt, and then that that's been sort of recently. Pre- down with the IFRS sixteen, or things like that, and of course uh, you can speak to people like me.
0: Absolutely, and uh, there you have it. If there are uh, no more questions, I would like to uh, thank Jason very much for his time. Of course, as Jason mentioned, you can find his insights on Smart Karma, and of course you will be able to find the forensic accounting tools that he has linked to as well for any other questions uh, you can email us at research at smartkarma.com. jason thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing uh your insights into this very fascinating uh subject
1: all right thank you thanks michael and thanks to all the attendees
0: that's it for this week if you like this episode Please share with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media, where Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening, and see you at the next one.